This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Welcome to this podcast episode on the series we call The Engine Room of Democracy. The purpose of this series is to explain to American citizens how rule of law works in practice. During the series, we're hearing from very distinguished Americans who have held very senior roles in government who have been responsible for rule of law and how it works every day in our government. Today, I'm very honored and Please, that Major General John Ewers is with us. He's a Marine, Marine first, lawyer second, very distinguished career. He rose to become the Marine Corps staff judge advocate, which is the senior legal position for the Marine Corps, the senior advisor to the commandant. Uh, but John also was a Marine who spent a good deal of time in combat zones. Now, the topic I want to explore with John today is this kind of a paradoxical question to some American citizens, and that is this question, what is lawful warfare? To many citizens, they think that when war breaks out, that's because legal systems have failed. War is ultimately a political act and a political decisions. Democracies have to conduct warfare, but America has a unique culture and tradition of conducting legal and lawful warfare. And that's what we want to explore today. So, uh, John, thank you for joining us. We're really pleased that you would be with us. Sir, thank you very much for having me. I, I'm just delighted to be a part of this. I think it's a very topical discussion, and I'm just glad you asked me to do this. Thanks, sir. Well, thank you, John. Uh, let's start, and I think it's always important to start with the Constitution. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it defines you know, who we are. John, how does the Constitution impact the Marine Corps and other military services? You know, sir, I, when you first broached that question with me as we were discussing this project, I naturally defaulted to what a lot of the lawyers like to look at, and that is the relative powers of the President and Congress in Article 2, Section 2, and Article 1, Section 8, and the President's power as Commander-in-Chief as it's limited by Congress's power to declare war, which is a really interesting subject, but for Marines, that's a little bit academic. And even for Marine lawyers, it's a little bit academic. But I will tell you, I did represent a guy once, a Marine, who refused to go to Desert Shield. And one of the bases for his declining to go to Desert Shield was that the president's order was illegal and that he shouldn't have to go because the president's order was illegal. 
for Marines, I think it comes down to something a little bit more fundamental. And this isn't just for Marine lawyers. This is really for all Marines. And that's the oath that we take as service members to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And that sets the Constitution at a fundamental, as the bedrock of military service. And the significance of that, in my mind, in the law of war, is that it's a reminder to military members, service members, and to all others that the rule of law is paramount above the orders of their civilian and military masters. The rule of law is paramount. So when I think of the Constitution and its impact on the Marine Corps, I think of the fact that we are bound to the law rather than to individuals or to administrations. John, you were, of course, a lawyer through your Marine Corps career and many different legal issues that come up when you're in headquarters, but you were also the senior lawyer in combat theaters. So what is lawful warfare? Sir, I'm not sure that I would call lawful warfare a term of art, but compliance with the law of war is something that has been the the signature of of American warfare uh, since its founding and something that's fundamental to us. If you think about what lawful warfare is, it really has two components. The first component is the requirement to have some reason to resort to use of force in the first place. That is Article 51 of the UN Charter, which allows us to act in self-defense or in collective self-defense. So that's called jus ad bellum, which is the good reasons to go to war. The second, which is probably more relevant to our conversation, is what's called jus in bello, which is the conduct of war, the means and methods of warfare, and what's permissible and not permissible in warfare. In order for us to conduct lawful warfare, we need to comply with both jus ad bellum and jus in bello. The flip side of that is even if we enter a war without an appropriate reason to enter the war, we're still bound by the laws relating to the means and methods of warfare. So it's a fairly comprehensive uh, list of rules for both sides of that equation. John, if I could, it seems to me that one of the bedrock methods by which we control warfare and do it in a lawful manner, consistent with law of war, is by designing rules of engagement. I remember when I was at the department during the Coast War Air War, we spent a lot of time on designing rules of engagement. Tell us, our audience, what are rules of engagement? So rules of engagement, that's where military lawyers, both uniformed and civilian lawyers who belong to DOD, earn their money in a combat environment. The rules of engagement delineate the circumstances, essentially, and limitations on our engagement in combat operations. They set forth the law of war, so at a very minimum, the rules of engagement have to comply with the law of war. But they also integrate considerations beyond the law of war related to strategic objectives, political considerations, and other considerations. So rules of engagement are at least as restrictive as the law of war, in many instances, they're more restrictive. And for lawyers, the art of this thing, if you will, is developing rules of engagement. And the mark of a good rule of engagement is something that articulates and communicates not just the rule of law, although we spend a a lot of time on sort of boilerplate rule of law, but also the political considerations down to the level of the individual private soldier. Because if you can't articulate what the strategic objectives are and what the political considerations are, and the limits on our ability to carry out the fight, then you failed in developing 
effective rules of engagement. And so we talk with individual riflemen about rules of engagement. Is that at every level? Absolutely, sir. You know, the rules of engagement are a little bit murkier than the Geneva Conventions. And sometimes, you know, in, in many instances, they're classified because we need to be delicate about what it is that our political considerations are. But suffice it to say, we communicate our strategic objectives and our political restrictions and limitations to the individual soldier to ensure that we are going to have a strategic victory and not just a tactical victory. Obviously, the Department of Defense is a massive organization, a huge organization. Ultimately, it's the president that has to decide if we're going to go to war. The president is accountable to the citizens through an election. So when the president makes a decision, he wants to know that orders will be carried out, but we can control the force, that we have positive control, that we don't have situations on the battlefield where it just runs away and it creates, as you say, political problems that were never intended. Let's take Iraq as an example. You were there. How do you think the president's direction was understood during your time when you were in Iraq? You know, sir, I think it varied a little bit over the time that I was in Iraq. So I first went to Kuwait before the invasion of Iraq in early 2003. And then I returned to Iraq in 2006 and seven and was there. And over that period of time, I would say that the understanding of the average Marine soldier, sailor, airman, Coastie, of the president's direction varied. It was pretty clear up front. And as we talked about, you know, the rules of engagement come down and, and we had opportunity to look at the joint resolutions that talked about the authorization for the use of military force. So we knew kind of what the constraints were. We, you know, for example, I'd point out the difference in the AUMF that we had when we went into Kuwait in 1990 versus the AUMF when we went into Iraq in, in 2003. And they're pretty different in terms of the purpose of the operation. So that's where it begins. And I'm sure it occurred to me, I doubt it occurred to the average Marine that this was the president's direction because they just, they have this inability to see to those high levels. But as the rules of engagement and the other directives come down, they are communicated to each level of command to the point where, as I mentioned before, with respect to rules of engagement, the average soldier and sailor, airman, Marine knows exactly what we're trying to do. Again, with a conventional warfare like the invasion of Iraq, that's pretty simple. We want to take on the Iraqi army and fight them and, and destroy them. And I had a very articulate division commander uh, whose name happened to be Jim Mattis, who made it very clear to our Marines and sailors what we were going to do and not going to do to the Iraqi armed forces and the Iraqi people. So I would say that in early OIF, it was very clear. Of course, when you move from a conventional fight to more of a counterinsurgency fight, it's murkier. And, you know, they call counterinsurgency uh, morally bruising. It's just a little bit more difficult to maintain that fight. There's a lot of frustration associated with it. So over time, I would say that the understanding of the American soldier of what the president wanted to do became a little less clear. But I'm not sure that's not because the objectives became a little less clear. I don't think it was a problem in articulating them down the chain of command. I think it was a problem associated with what exactly we were trying to accomplish and how we were going to get there. Mm. John, you mentioned a minute ago the Geneva Conventions. Uh, you know, I think Americans, probably all Americans have heard that term, don't really know much about the content. So what did the Geneva Conventions mean to you in the field? 
was there tension between the Geneva Conventions and the orders that you were given for uh, combat operations? Great question, sir. So the Geneva Conventions, as we know, set forth the requirements to respect and protect what are called corps de combat. Basically, that's non-combatants, that's prisoners of war and the wounded. It boils down the law of war and the law of international human rights. And um, the Geneva Conventions are essential. And the provisions of the Geneva Conventions are essential to success in the field. So they're important, not just in the field, but, you know, we start training our Marines and the other services do as well by regulation and, and I think law from the time they get to boot camp on the, on the Geneva Conventions. It's required. And we continue to train them. And in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003, we trained units and we continued to train with every deployment. And when we got in theater, we continued the training. So it's an ongoing process. And the reason I mention that is because it's not just important in the field. And if you wait until you get into the field to worry about the Geneva Conventions, to impress not just the content of the rules of the Geneva Conventions on our Marines, but the respect that's required. If you don't start doing that until you're in combat, then you're going to fail. So we spent a lot of time on it and, you know, we continue to do that. So I think about the question that you're asking with respect to whether or not there was tension between the Geneva Conventions and the orders that were given. And I think that my, my strict answer to that would be no. Orders are easy to give. Carrying out orders in a combat zone is enormously difficult to accomplish. So there's an inherent tension in any fight between the actions of combatants, usually not because of something that they were ordered to do, but because of something that they need to do to accomplish another order that they might have, and the Geneva Conventions, which is why it's so important to make sure that you inculcate every American service member with the notion that we are going to do the right thing and that whatever the mission accomplishment is, we're not going to violate the Geneva Conventions when we do it. John, that just departs a bit from something that I shared with you in advance, but just to ask, you were in the theater, I think, at the time of Abu Ghraib. Can you share your thoughts about that? You know, sir, I don't know a whole lot about the specifics of Abu Ghraib, except, you know, what I read. I wasn't involved in the investigation or, or any of it. But I think that Abu Ghraib indicates and sort of illustrates the dangers that you have in maintaining the respect for the Geneva Conventions that is impressed upon you as a soldier. And as time goes on, it gets more and more difficult to do. But I think it also reflects well the Army held some people accountable in that instance. And I think that when the problems were discovered, they were appropriately investigated and people were held accountable. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I participated in was a number of investigations of violations of the law of war, not associated with Abu Ghraib, but we investigated uh, some of the Hadith incidents and uh, there were other smaller incidents that we discovered. The need to continue to investigate and ensure that there is accountability for uh, violations of the law of war, it's, that's just critical in, in a combat zone. Could you help our listeners? They probably don't remember Haditha. Could you just give us a summary? I will. So the thumbnail is that a Marine platoon squad went out in late 2005 in a small town in western Iraq called Haditha. And the result of an engagement, which is the detail, the actual details elude me, was that a bunch of civilians were killed. And 
who was killed and the circumstances under which they were killed and whether they were just incidental killings or something else became the subject of investigation. I didn't do the investigation of the actual violations of the Geneva Convention, strictly speaking. I was involved with an investigation conducted by Major General Bargewell as an Army Major General, God rest his soul. We looked at the command's response to Haditha, not as it reflected necessarily on the behavior of the Marines when they were involved in the incident, but how we as an American command responded to them and the things that we did that might have contributed to that kind of incident, whether in this particular instance or in later instances. What you just described is, I believe, procedures that are outlined in what we call the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the UCMJ, which is uh, the law for the military, as I understand it. How does it deal with issues like this, like law of warfare? How does it deal with so-called war crimes? You know, so so the UCMJ is very important as an instrument. A little bit about the UCMJ. The UCMJ is essentially a criminal code that applies to all servicemen. It not only enumerates the acts that are offenses under the UCMJ, but it also talks about procedure and disciplinary actions, administrative actions, and things that commanders can do. So it it is a self-contained criminal code that applies to service members. The purpose of the UCMJ is to promote good order and discipline. That's stated in the manual of courts martial that the purpose is to promote good order and discipline. In a combat zone, it's essential because it's discipline that promotes compliance with the rule of law. As we've talked about and alluded to just in our short conversation so far, in a combat zone, the tendency to want to react in a very drastic manner is always going to be there. So the discipline that's necessary for soldiers to do what they're supposed to do comes not just from the training that we give them which they call ex-ante action. So we give them rules of engagement. We give them the Geneva Conventions. We train them, but also the ex-post actions. And that is holding them accountable when they violate the law of war, enforcing the rules. So it's like a carrot and a stick, if that makes sense. So the UCMJ is important, not just because it tells Marines and sailors what it is that they can and can't do, but what is going to happen to them if they're alleged to have committed a violation. One of the things that it does, and, and of course, there's a lot of common law crimes. So when a war crime is committed, when a law of war violation is committed, you can charge it either as a common law crime, a murder or rape a robbery, or you can charge it as a violation of the Geneva Conventions. The system's flexible enough to give you options, but the accountability piece, which is something that we'll continue to talk about here, is very important there in my mind. You mentioned this term, good order and discipline, and it's uh, really foundational. Could you illuminate us on that? I mean, it isn't just a disciplinary structure. It's good order and discipline. What does it mean, you know, from a standpoint of a senior officer like you? Sir, yeah, I think that the best way for me to answer that question is to contrast what I would call a World War I look at military justice compared to a 21st century look at military justice. There are still people who believe that the UCMJ has a trace or remnant of what they, in World War I, at least reportedly, sort of the barbaric notion that military justice might mean that, hey, you know what, 
we got a problem with desertion. So we need to round up a couple of soldiers, whether they were going to actually desert or not. And we need to shoot them to make sure everybody understands that you can't go over the hill. And that, that sort of idea that the military justice is blind to guilt or innocence is just a matter of making sure everybody does what they need to do. Which you can understand how people would believe that based on, as we've talked about, the tendency for misconduct in a combat zone. But good order and discipline, and the way that the UCMJ does good order and discipline is by doing justice. There are no traces of, of what I just referred to. And what we do is, again, we set up, we explain exactly what can and can't happen and what is going to happen if there's an allegation. The important thing to remember is that there's due process. So it's not just a matter of you're going to be held accountable, but you're going to be fairly held accountable. And that gives a service member the ability to serve with the confidence that if they do the right thing, they're going to be okay. And if they do the wrong thing, they're going to be treated fairly, but they're going to be punished. John, let me ask a complicated question and maybe a difficult question, and that's the use of mercenaries on the battlefield. Now, we, we call them contractors, you know, but in many ways they were mercenaries hired to do security for us or for other organizations. A lot of questions about the legal framework for contractors on the battlefield. Would you share your thoughts with us about that? Of course, sir. Mercenaries, whether you call them contractors or anything else, is a can of worms. There are just a host of problems associated with the use of contractors. There was an article in the Post this morning you may have seen uh, that talked about a problem that's a little bit off our path here, but it was basically about how the use of contractors obscures the cost in blood and treasure that the United States has expended in our adventures into Iraq and Afghanistan. And one of the most important facts in there was that a thousand more contractors have been killed since 2001 than service members, American contractors. Now, we don't know whether those are American citizens or not, but that toll does not show up in any of our casualty statistics. And it tends to obscure, obviously, what it is that we are paying in order to do what we're doing. But I think you're referring more to accountability issues and uh, the dangers of contractors getting out there and behaving in a manner that is inconsistent with the law of war and our ability to control them. So I'm going to give you an answer that's a little bit abstract, recognizing that the devil is in the details in all of these matters, but particularly with respect to mercenaries and contractors. And the abstract answer comes right out of the law, the DOD Law War Manual, which was finally published in 2016. And that is that there really aren't any rules that don't apply to mercenaries. It's not illegal per se to be a mercenary. It's mercenaries can be held accountable and states who use mercenaries are responsible for ensuring their compliance with the law of war and for holding them accountable. So the legal framework, at least the, the sort of the infrastructure is there to control them and hold them accountable. The problem is, is that they're so elusive that it's difficult to get after them and work it effectively. So in my mind, we have a lot of issues to address with respect to mercenaries, but the legal, the international law of war infrastructure is there to do what needs to be done in order to take care of the mercenary problem. I would say this, there, there are worse problems that we have. There's a group out there called the Wagner Group, I think, that's an active private army that's associated with Russia and its armed forces that at least the reports indicate that they're acting like a private army and are answerable to no one. We at least have some visibility on our military contractors 
we just need to exercise it a little bit more. And, and we have a lot of work to do on mercenaries. But again, I think that the legal framework is there to address the problem. But you, you said earlier that, uh, of course, the foundation of UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice, is good order and discipline. Does that apply to mercenaries, good order and discipline? Yes, sir. I could write a law review article on that. That, strictly speaking, the UCMJ does not, although it can apply to civilians accompanying the force. So there are instances in which it might apply. But there are mechanisms under federal law and other mechanisms that allow us to get at the accountability of civilians who are working for contractors. Again, it's a matter of running the traps on them and making sure that we've got the visibility on them and that everybody knows who everybody is on the battlefield. And we had contractors, mercenaries, who were working for the Iraqi government, and that was kind of side by side with us. Was that also a problem? Again, sir, it's really just a matter of figuring out who everybody belongs to and who everybody answers to. And, you know, there, there are a lot of rules within the U.S. military about the use of contractors and inherently governmental functions and restrictions on what we can do with contractors that, of course, don't apply to the Iraqis or the Afghans. But again, it's just a matter of making sure we know who everybody is and who they work for and how it is that we hold them accountable. I don't mean to suggest that it's easy, but it's doable. No, I actually, what you're really saying is it's really hard and you really have to work at it. And it does seem to me it, it does have implications how mercenaries behave. You know, ultimately, they look like American soldiers to a lot of people. And so the political implication of not controlling mercenaries is huge. Agreed, sir. Agreed. Yeah, John, let me ask you another difficult question, and that is war crimes. You know, it's a kind of a colloquial term. It probably has much more detailed legal meaning. You know, war is a very, very brutal thing beyond anybody's imagination. And wars change, you know, your own personal value structure at the time. It's intense pressure on people. How should civilians, how should we think about war crimes? I mean, we live here pretty safely here at home. We don't see the brutality of war. You've seen it. Just reflect on this question of war crimes. Sir, if I may digress before I answer your question specifically, I just want to tell a quick anecdote because you mentioned the fact that war crimes is a colloquial term. When we were about to go to Iraq in 2002, 2003, again, General Mattis ordered me to create a team that would immediately investigate allegations of violations of the law of war. And we put it together and it, I'm proud to say that it sort of became the standard for the most combat units for the next 10 years, had a team that was very much like it. But one of the issues that I spent a lot of time on, surprisingly, was what to call it. And my first idea was to call it the War Crimes Assessment Team. But everybody thought that that might sort of imply that we were going to engage in war crimes and we were going to take it on. So we eventually called it the Reportable Incident Assessment Team, which comes out of a DOD directive. And it became you know, a little bit more bureaucratic name, but the idea that we needed to stay away from the war crimes moniker, you reminded me of that when you mentioned the club. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, so that question really reminds me more of a quote that's a little murky, but it's often ascribed to either George Orwell or, or Winston Churchill. And that is, we sleep safely because rough men stand ready to do violence to those who would harm us. So what American civilians who haven't had a military experience might ask is, 
who are we to judge what goes on in a combat zone? And, and I, I think the answer to that is nonsense. You're American citizens and we have every right, not just to judge, but we have responsibility to judge what goes on the battlefield. U.S. service members are held to a higher standard. That's just the point of departure. We accept that. Exercising or excusing unlawful acts on the battlefield is just indefensible. You know, one of the things that I think of here is that when we do try to hold a Marine accountable for something that happens on the battlefield, and we bring together a court-martial or some kind of administrative board, we want to make sure that we have combat veterans on there. Not because we want the combat veterans to go, hey, we know how it was, we know how tough it was, and we're going to give you a break. Because combat veterans know what's okay and what's not okay, and know when the line's crossed, and they're less likely to shrink from making those kinds of judgments. So we have mechanisms, and we have the ability to determine whether war crimes have been committed. And while there may be a lot of mitigating evidence that comes in in a specific case, the idea that we aren't going to hold them accountable because what goes on in the battlefield stays on the battlefield is just nonsense. And it's just something that we have to address if we are going to continue to insist that we are different, that we have respect for the law of war. You know, I talked a little bit about accountability in the context of ex post actions related to the law of war. Just incidentally, one of the arguments that we make against Americans subjecting themselves to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court is that we don't need to be under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court because we hold our people responsible. If we fail to do that on a systemic level, then our arguments to avoid being a member of the International Criminal Court start to fall on deaf ears. Yeah, and that's a subject we ought to pick up on another day because it's a really important question. John, this has been a fascinating discussion. Let me just do injustice to it, but summarize just a couple of thoughts and then ask for your concluding reflections on it. Uh, rule of law is just absolutely fundamental in American society, and it carries right into our military. It is grounded in our Constitution, and it defines who we are and how we behave. It depends on institutions. You were a military lawyer. It institutions that we actually create inside the military to carry rule of law into the military and right down to the battlefield. It does depend on procedures. They're very well developed. You exercise them. You invented new ones when you needed them. And it depends on a, just a profound consensus that this is fundamental to Americans culture and well-being. Your thoughts as we wrap this up. Yes, sir. I want to just mention quickly, it's become readily apparent, painfully apparent over the last several years, how important it is to protect our institutions and to maintain the integrity of our institutions, because that's what the American political system is about. With respect to rule of law and combat and the American service members, I want to go back to the message that I referred to earlier, I think, that General Mattis published to 1st Marine Division as we were getting ready to cross the line of departure into Iraq in 2003. In the message, the general urged aggressiveness and he urged tenacity, and he called for the destructions of the forces that would fight us. But he also urged compassion and he urged decency, and he even urged chivalry. And he closed by saying, we will keep our honor clean and do the right thing. If you think of that in conjunction with something that General Joe Dunford said several years later, 
or at least it's attributed to him. He said, when we go to war, we bring our values with us. If you read those two things in conjunction, I think that that sort of illustrates the importance of the rule of law in service in the American Armed Forces. Marines keeping their honor clean is merely a subset of the values to which General Dunford alluded. You read that, it says, the virtue that the American fighting men and women bring to combat is humanity and respect for the rule of law. If we don't maintain that respect and humanity, if we believe in American exceptionalism, that's gonna fall by the wayside. So I think it's something that we need to continue to foster among our service members and continue to make important. John Ewers, Marine, lawyer, patriot, thank you. You've been a great teacher for me today. I'm very grateful for your time. Sir, thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 